0: Uh, Last week, Andrew had a catchy title to his sermon. What was it again? A Killer Sermon. sermon. So I was trying to come up with a catchy title for adultery. (laughs) I don't know. You know, stop in the name of love. (laughs) Looking for love in all the wrong places. And then I started to go down a bad path, so I quit. So... We're not gonna come up with a special title like Andrew did. I'm not as talented, but um, let's take a look at the black and white way the commandment comes to us. It's very simple. Exodus twenty fourteen, Deuteronomy five, eighteen. You shall not commit adultery. Okay, don't do it. I'll say it again. Don't do it. End of sermon. Got any questions? (laughs) Um, I'm just kidding, because I see people getting up ready to leave and go get their seat at the Miguel's restaurant, so beat the Methodists out there. Um, But I I do have some more for you, so you're going to have to stay, sorry. Um, As a pilot, I ended up flying all around the world, and I've had the opportunity to see some really beautiful sights from my front seat, or as some pilots call it, the window seat up front, and one of those, believe it or not, at night is a thunderstorm. Thunderstorms, from a distance, are really beautiful. I've got a picture. Here's one of those storms at night. That's gorgeous, isn't it? And here's the thing that, that's interesting about it. That from a distance, that is really beautiful. It captures your attention, and you're thinking, this is, this is really a beautiful sight. But, if you get too close, The beauty is gone, and the danger is apparent. We get into rules that pilots have. This is for your safety, too. Don't fly not only in a thunderstorm, but don't even fly any closer than 20 nautical miles from the edge of a thunderstorm. Why is that? Because it's dangerous. Because there is actually uh, hail that comes out of these thunderstorms and that it can damage your airplane. I won't go into all the damage it can do because some of you are afraid of flying already, but I will show you one picture of a Delta Airlines flight just within the last month that got too close to one of these storms, went under an area that had hail coming out, and there it is. Can you see the windows and the nose going all bent in? And so that, that tells you something, that something from a distance is really beautiful like that thunderstorm at night. But if you get too close to it, it can do a lot of damage. And so today, today we're going to be talking about you know, that picture that we see there, that that's a good rule for me and you to stay away from those thunderstorms, but we're also going to see it's a good good rule to stay away from other things too in today's Discussion we're going to have last week we studied God's commandment on murder. This week we'll see that Scripture has a lot to say about fidelity, oaths, commitment. First and foremost, if murder is a violation of life itself, adultery is a violation of its most important and sacred human relationship—that of marriage. I found a letter. Anybody remember, dear Abby? Some of you don't even know who the heck that was. But there was a thing in the newspapers a long time ago where you would write into Abby or Ann Landers, and she would give you an answer back. And I found a letter <coughs> that makes the point about adultery very clear, comes across loud and clear, and the, the letter goes like this. I'll just read it to you. How about a letter from a winner? My married lover left his wife for me. I was told that I wasn't breaking up anything. His marriage was dead long before he met me. His wife had gotten fat. I was married too, but I assured him that my marriage was also over. My husband had gotten dull and boring. So I divorced my boring husband, and he divorced his chubby wife. And we both had children, but we explained that we were both in love and When they were older, they would understand our marriage was a dream come true. No more lying, sneaking around. At long last, we were legally husband and wife for the world to see. Our apartment was filled with modern furniture, old-fashioned guilt, and plenty of doubt and mistrust. Two years later, he was meeting someone new. I told him he was a liar and a cheat. He said, it took one to know one. And by the way, he had gotten a little dull and boring, and I put on a little weight, sign, a winner. This is a testimony of one person who followed the wisdom of the world, thinking that the grass was greener on the other side of the street. She wrote to express a regret that many experienced who have listened to the cries of the so-called experts of the world today. Now, the Seventh Commandment, helps to emphasize why God hates adultery. Because it goes against God's original design. We see here in, by the way, (laughs) because it goes against God's original design. All right? Genesis 2, 24, 25 says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. (coughs) The prohibition against adultery doesn't make sense until we understand God's original design for sexual expression is within the confines of marriage. Now, today's world would say that's too limiting. You know, uh, that, that kind of makes me feel like a prisoner. I can't only have one person. But God had a design, so keep this in mind. The verses in Genesis teach us something important about God. He is not opposed to our enjoyment of sex within marriage. He designed it. God designed it and gave it to Adam and Eve. Now remember what Adam said when God first brought the woman in? At last, the man exclaimed, this one is bone for my bone and flesh for my flesh. Now, Joey Harness, if you know Joey Harness, said that his professor at the cemetery, seminary said, you know, what it's, you know what that says translated into Hebrew? Hubba, hubba. Or, <laughs> All right. That's a, All right, God, that was good. <laughs> so, you know, Joey will hear this on tape. Um, But Satan tries to malign goodness of God by making us think that God is trying to take our fun away by restricting sex just to marriage. Uh, But God knows that it creates a major problem when we violate his design for his gift. It was a gift to us. We need to regard marriage and sex in marriage as God's good gift. Designed for our pleasure, to meet our deepest needs of human companionship. So, in the context of marriage, we can thankfully enjoy what God has given. The marriage relationship must be built primarily on commitment, not on feelings of romantic love. Romantic love is important, you know, we all have those feelings and that's not a bad thing, but the foundation of marriage is a commitment of will, of your will, my will. Uh, It's a covenant before God. Commitment is what holds a couple together through the difficulties that invariably come. You know, Pat and I have been married nearly 37 years, not as long as some, not, and longer than others, but what a blessing she's been to me. What What a beautiful gift from God. So, you know, she, our marriage has been something that we have really grown as time has gone by, grown in our relationship with Christ, growing in our relationship with each other. And now we have kids and grandkids and it's only gotten better every year, despite the circumstances. Have we had hard times? Have we had tough times? Have we had to go thi- through things together? Yeah, but personally, I wouldn't, you know, she really helped me in the, those times. I know I was there for her. That's a commitment that you make because you're going to go through hard times when you're married. You're going to go through difficult times. But God has has a design for you. He has a plan for you. It's not a bad plan. Together you can weather the storm. Um, all I can say about Pat is I couldn't have done it without her. All the things we've been through, uh, absolutely not. So also we go on here and we see that God designed marriage to provide an illustration of our relationship with him. Uh, The Bible says that God created marriage for the purpose bigger than itself. Marriage is a picture of the believer's relationship with God. Paul writes in Ephesians, marriage is an earthly picture of a spiritual relationship that exists between God, the bridegroom, and the church, his bride. The consummation of marriage is referred to in the Bible as a man knowing his wife. And we can know Christ, our bridegroom, as a church, our bridegroom, uh, a husband and wife are one flesh, we are one spirit with the Lord as a church, okay? So just as a church is subject to Christ, so the wife is subject to her husband. Just as the church loves, Christ loves the church, so a husband is to love his wife. And let me tell you something important here. You can look at it as duty, but it's not duty. My relationship with my wife and my wife's relationship with me is based on love. She does things to help me, I do things to help her. I participate in marriage out of love, not out of duty. Uh, And you you, you have to realize that this this is a shared thing that God designed for us to help and support one another and have those relationships within that marriage. And you need a companion. Um, Of course, you know, the Bible also says that if you feel those desires, if you have that lust, if you, you know, you need to get married. Not everyone will get married, that's okay. Uh, But anyway, just as the marital union results in children, so the union of the Lord and his church is to result in many offspring, in other words, more more additions to our family, uh, <clears throat> to God's glory, really. Someone has described marriage as God's doing with one man and one woman that which he always is trying to do within the world as a whole. That's why it's so important for you to work on developing a Christ-honoring relationship with your spouse. You're working on a portrait of Christ and the church Because why? The world is looking over your shoulder. God's glory is at stake. Sometimes we don't think about it that way. You know, I'm so focused on me that I forget about being a Christian. I'm concerned about myself and that somebody else has created my problems and I let that overflow. And God is saying to us, you know, you're going to go through trouble together, <coughs> but you need to stay focused on me. Amen. Love one another, love me. We can get through this together. Amen. So God hates adultery because it destroys marriages and families. Okay. <laughs> the glorious period, picture of marital bliss in the garden is shattered, what? By human sin. When the first couple sinned against God, they became separated from God. Now now listen to me. The first thing that happened was they saw that tree they weren't supposed to touch. Don't touch that tree. You can do anything else, but don't touch that tree. Remember that one? Everybody thinks, well, Eve ate an apple, and that's what created the problem. No. they were They were obsessed. They were lusting after that fruit. They sinned long before they took the fruit off the tree, and and by the way, Adam was standing right there. Amen. He was there. He wasn't saying anything. All right. So don't blame it on Eve. She did it. She took the apple, but Adam was right there with her. Um, so when the first couple sinned against God, they became they became separated from God. The marriage covenant, the covenant between man and woman, is still powerful, but because of sin, it's It's a fractured version of what God originally designed, what he intended. Uh, Trust is broken. Marriages are imperfect. Uh, Many may fall apart. Throughout the Old Testament history, we see how marriage was damaged as a result of sin in the world. Uh, Men mistreated women by betraying them, taking multiple wives. Adultery became commonplace. Uh, I I tried to think of the best way to really give you an example of this, because we talked about the thunderstorm and and how beautiful that was from a distance and what happens when you get close. There's danger there. And I thought about 2 Samuel chapter 11. There's two people in there I want to talk about, David and Bathsheba. David... Was chosen by God to replace Saul, as a young man, David the, the sl- slay Goliath, the giant killer. David was a king who went out to battle with his men, won many victories, was a man after God's own heart. We've heard that. So here we here we see David. We know his reputation. Uh, we know he was a good-looking guy. He was really honoring God all the time. In Psalm 57, when Saul is chasing him and he's in the cave, uh, he's honoring God. He's saying, I'm going to sing your praise in the morning, in the evening, all day long. I'm going to follow your guidance everywhere. Psalm 57. Now we see David in his palace. The army's going out to fight the battles in the spring, and David is alone in the palace. Now remember this: isolated, alone. Be careful of that. <laughs> Boredom. Be careful of that. That's a problem. Uh, trusting yourself. That's a problem. So, if you're isolated, you're bored, you're trusting yourself. There's a, there's an issue there. You need to get into word. You need to get with some, have some accountability. So David's alone. He's bored. And he walks out from his bed onto the palace balcony. And he spies a woman over here, bathing. Now, Eric Mason, a guy out of Philadelphia, who's a pastor in Philadelphia, black pastor in Philadelphia, he says, that was a problem that Bathsheba created the whole problem. (laughs) But we can't blame that on Bathsheba, because she didn't know David was up there watching her. He had a viewpoint, and remember this, he sees her, and all of a sudden, he can't take his eyes off of her. He wants her, physically wants her. So David says to his people, who is that? And they said, that's Bathsheba. Now catch this. Wife of Uriah, daughter of Elam. Uriah is a soldier who's loyal to David, out there fighting already. Elam is an advisor to David. And David... and you know, it's kind of a hint. Hey, David, I know you're the king, but she's married. Now, the is- Israelites had uh, did not like abortion any better than anybody else, but, but it happened. Somebody was trying to throw a hint to the king, say, don't do this. This is not right. But the king didn't take it. Something was in his heart that he couldn't get rid of, that he, he was allowing to control his actions and he said, go get her. And they went down and got her. And it says in the Bible, he laid with her, which means he slept with her, he had sex with her. Uh, and he just went ahead. You know, where was it, David, that was saying in Psalm 57, oh, God, I sing your praises morning, noon, and night. I follow your guidance all the time. Where was that David? We, we have a heart that can lead us astray. You know, David's no different than you and I. So David sends for her. He has sex with her. Lo and behold, what happens, not too much longer, too much time passes by. Bathsheba contacts David, sends word to him, and says, I'm pregnant. So now David, instead of confessing his sin, instead of going to the Lord, instead of owning up, He starts to think of a plan to cover up. Mm -hmm. This is the next step in the problem. I'm getting closer to that thunderstorm. You know, I've already got in too close already. I'm damaged. Now I'm going in further. And so now David says, Send me Uriah. Bring him back in front. I want to talk to him. So Uriah, the husband of Bathsheba, comes back. And... What happens? David talks to him. How's it going? Everything going okay? Uriah says, yes, sir. Everything's going okay? Because he is talking to the king. And David said, well, you know, how's Joab? Joab was a general that was out there. He's fine. Um, And so David says, well, fine. Just spend some time with your family. And then you can go back tomorrow. Well, Uriah is thinking, my fellow soldiers are back there fighting this battle I'm not going to go spend time with my wife because that would be dishonoring to them so he sleeps on the palace steps David is up there watching this and he sees oh no this guy's not going home my plan is not going to work to cover up what I did remember this is all about me all about me protecting my honor hiding from God God sees all this so he calls Uriah, in the next night he goes, come on in and have dinner with me, and here's some wine. And he had, Uriah has dinner, gets Uriah drunk, figures I get him drunk, he goes back home, he has sex with his wife, I'm free and clear. So the, the point is, another cover-up, another way to hide from your sin, another way to keep your reputation. Um, You know you you did wrong, but now you're trying to cover it up. So Uriah, after drinking, does not go back to his wife again. Again, he honors the men that he knows are back there fighting, does not go back to his wife. So now David takes another step. This step is murder. This step is where David writes out orders to Joab that says, when Uriah comes back, I want you to put him up in the front and I want you to withdraw the troops back from him and (coughs) and let him get killed, basically. Report back to me when when that's done. So who carries the orders to Joab? Uriah didn't know what was in the orders. He carries his own death sentence from David to Joab. Now think about this. Think about David. What in the world is going on here? And this is why God warns us about these things, because he knows one step leads to another step. It is not something that you can just... You can't. We'll talk about it more, but it's not a good thing. So Uriah gets killed. David gets a report. Now, everything's okay now, right? No, it's not. And in chapter 12 of 2 Samuel... The Lord sends Nathan. Now, everybody should have a Nathan. Have you ever heard this? Everybody should have a Nathan in in their life. Mm -hmm. Why? Because Nathan speaks truth to power. David is a king. Everybody's not going to say what they really think or what's really happening to David. You might have friends that speak truth to you. That's great, particularly if they're Christian friends. That's important in our lives. We need accountability. Nathan comes in to David, and he tells him a story. He says, look, there's a guy that has a herd of sheep, and he's very rich, and he's got uh, lots of them. They fill up his land. Next door to him is somebody that's very poor, and he has one small lamb, and this lamb he feeds from his own food and lets him drink from his cup and sleeps with this lamb, this baby. And... Uh, So what happens is the rich guy that has all the other lambs, he has friends come in and he wants to entertain them. And so he decides, I'm not going to use my lambs. I'll just reach over the fence and get this guy's one lamb and cook that for dinner for my friends. Well, at that point in the story that Nathan's telling David, David stops him and says, wait a minute, who is this guy? I want to know who he is because I want to punish him, basically. And Nathan said, that guy is you, David. That man is you. David's sin reaped the consequences for his family and his country. We'll talk more about it in a a little bit, but I want you to just have that picture, that thunderstorm that you get too close to, that lust in your eyes would lead you down this path to slaughter. You think you think it's you can handle it. You can't handle it. Amen. So God hates adultery because it damages a picture of the gospel. You with me? Am I going too fast? All right. So you may wonder what God's law about it you know, what does God's law have to do with adultery? And the gospel? What What's the connection? So we look at Galatians 3.24. And Galatians 3.24 says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now remember here it's talking about all the law, the Ten Commandments basically. It's saying what? That that kind of reminded me of what God wants until Christ comes and can you know, I'm just going to, it's going to be a mirror held up to me. The law is a mirror held up to me. But the only way I can be redeemed is by Christ coming. It says if I fulfill every part of the law, that I can be saved. But you cannot fulfill every part of the law. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But if we apply this verse right here, about the law in general to a specific law against adultery, we see that this command, like a guardian, was meant to protect marriage. It protects the design of what God established from the beginning. The law also protected marriage as a picture of the gospel. Marriage is connected to Christ in that it paints a picture of our relationship with God. So, let's look at Matthew 19. Verses five and six. Now in Matthew 19, Jesus reaffirmed the Old Testament vision of a man leaving his family and become one flesh with his wife. And this passage demonstrates that Christ became came to fulfill the law, not banish it, not get rid of the law. (laughs) Jesus went so far as to say, "Now remember this from marriage ceremonies. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no man cast asunder." or let no man separate, or man must not separate. God is the one who joins men and women together. Adultery is tearing apart the one flesh God has established. That's why it damages people emotionally, psychologically, spiritually. You know, it's a dangerous, dangerous thing for, for marriages and, and we see it rampant in our country today. Because why? Because I am not focused on God, I'm focused on myself. Yeah. It's about me, it's about how I feel. You know, it's not a covenant, marriage is not a covenant, it's consumerism. Consumerism is I try it out, I don't like it, I take it back. Mm-hmm. I return it. A covenant is something that I'm going to go through with you, thick or thin, with God. Uh. So, God hates adultery, again, another one, because it is an expression of spiritual adultery. I'm getting softer as I go along. My foot's getting sore. So, there's always a spiritual component that is against God's law. That's why David, going back to David, who sinned against Bathsheba and her husband, right? Right? When confessing his sin, cry it out to God for forgiveness against you. You alone I have sinned, Psalm 51. If we look at Psalm 51, 1 through 5. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me against you. You only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in inequity and in sin did my mother conceive me. So David's saying exactly that, that he knows he's finally, the light has you know, turned on, whatever you want to say. And he's recognized that he got away from that David that was in Psalm 57 that we talked about, who was praising God in the morning, in the evening, and in, in the middle of the day, was following God's guidance in every step. He didn't take a step before he did anything. God was his light that shined before him that kept him going. What happened? What happened to me? I got off course so quickly and so far God, I have sinned against you, and you only. So, in Scripture, God often describes his relationship with his people in terms of a marriage covenant. So the expectation is love and fidelity, both in my marriage and in my relationship with God. God is faithful and constantly pursuing his people. We see that in the Old Testament all the time. God is always faithful and He's always chasing after Israel, remember? But his people cheat on him by running after idols. What's your idol today? What are you running after? Uh, The consequence of committing adultery. I'm not going to go through all Proverbs 6, but we've seen that God forbids, forbids adultery because it unravels a bond that should never be broken. The marriage bond. Proverbs 6 gives instruction and in warning against adultery. Now this is, in Proverbs 6, it's Solomon, Solomon speaking to his son. And it's talking about <coughs> things in there that you would say to your son. If, if Solomon was talking to his daughter, he would say it a little bit differently and warn her in a special way. So when you read it, read it that way. But Proverbs 6.33 is talking about someone who commits adultery. He will not get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Or he will get wounds and dishonor, and his disgrace will not be wiped away. Adultery is something that affects you both here and can affect you in eternity. Uh, Adultery is a cruel crime love, is, love for each other is the most precious gift of man and woman on this earth Except for the gifts of God There is something very special About a man and his wife being one And so <clears throat> For someone to invade the privacy of a man and his wife Is without excuse That's what God's saying If we look at Proverbs 6, 28 and 29 Now this is talking again about This is Solomon again Talking and he's saying, "Can a man embrace fire and his clothes not be burned? Can a man walk on burning coals without scorching his feet? So it is with one who sleeps. So it is with one who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will be go unpunished." Now we lie to ourselves and we think, "Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Bible stuff. That doesn't apply to me." does. It does. So, you know, be extremely aware of this stuff, that you are no different than David. You are no different than this example that Solomon gave of this young man that gets trapped. So in Proverbs 7, we see a story about this young man who disregards warnings about this very thing. And he says, you know, uh, he allows his lust that he has, th- the same thing. David started out by seeing something. He starts out by seeing something, and then he gets in too close, and he commits adultery. And then we have Proverbs 7:22 and 23. So se- Proverbs 7, all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. As we saw from the example of David. You know, we can, we can look at these things and say, that'll never happen to me. Because why? Well, because I have a lot of self-control. I have things under control in my life. And I don't really need God because, you know, I'm young. I don't, I don't really believe in that stuff. Let me tell you something no matter what age you are, old, young, middle aged, wherever you are, you need the Lord. You cannot do this on your own. You can't go through life and face these challenges and not understand what your relationship with Him is and how He's trying to keep you from what? That thunderstorm tearing you up. He's telling you the truth. You can believe it or not believe it. Um. The point of these warnings is that our actions have severe consequences. Violating the law of God will not go unpunished. Uh, we, We will face earthly consequences for our sin, and unless we repent, we will face eternal condemnation too. What was the first thing that Jesus said when he came? Didn't he say repent? For the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. What does repent mean? Well, I'll try better next time. Turn away. Turn away. Go the other way. So if your eyes are causing you to potentially sin, look the other way. Go someplace else. Don't be alone. Don't get bored. Don't trust yourself. Get with somebody who makes you accountable. Get out of that situation. So if left unchecked, Left unchecked, sexual desire can become an idol that consumes our hearts. Remember the thing about an idol, about the people of Israel, and God having a problem with that? That's our problem, too. That's why we must guard our heart from anything that would hinder our relationship with God. Choosing to disobey God is choosing death over life. Another consequence of adultery is that it, it cheapens the beautiful gift sex, really, that God has given us. It takes it and makes it nothing. It takes it all so that, so that when you meet that special person, you get married, uh, that relationship, God saved it for that. That's something that's supposed to be really beautiful for you and in a relationship with God. The Bible does just doesn't give warnings against sex outside of marriage. It also commends sex inside of marriage, if you ever read Song of Solomon, you've seen a beautiful poem between a husband and wife. It's a poem, it's a love poem. And it's something that, that it, God doesn't frown on that. I mean, that within the confines of marriage, God is very happy because he created it, like I said earlier. Uh, and you compare that Song of Solomon to what we read about adultery in Proverbs 6 and 7, And immediately you can see how sex outside of God's plan cheapens the gift. The cure for lustful heart. (coughs) Matthew 5, 27 through 30. So this is Jesus, and we'll read it in a second. But we've seen that prohibition against adultery is God's desire for his people to live according to his design. So God's desire for people to live according to his design. We've also seen that keeping this commandment leads to life and breaking the commandment leads to death and destruction. We know that adultery tramples on the gift of marriage by polluting it with sexual immorality. But how do we stay pure? In a fallen world, we will battle against lust and temptation. What do we do? Uh, the law of force focuses on what not to do. Jesus went even further. Jesus claimed that <coughs> even if we don't outwardly commit the sin of adultery, we are guilty of adultery, of that sin, because of our inward lust. And Jesus goes through in Matthew 5, 27, 29, and then at the end he says, So you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body going to hell. Now Jesus is saying something here He's not telling you to go out and poke out your eyes and cut off your hand. But he is saying something important to you. That if you find yourself in this situation, you have to take immediate, drastic action. You cannot go at this like, kind of, oh well, I'll take care of it tomorrow, or maybe I'll take care of it next week. You have to immediately cut it off and there was a thing on uh, you probably don't remember this, but Andy Griffith's show had Barney Fife. If you've ever seen reruns of that show, and Barney Fife's favorite saying was, nip it, nip it in the bud. You ever heard that? <laughs> so so if you're there, nip it. <laughs> nip it. So, according to Jesus, it's not the hands and feet that lead us to adultery. It's what? It's what? The heart. The heart, sometimes in the Bible it says the mind, but it's the heart. Therefore the solution to a, a lustful heart is not willpower. It is not self-discipline. It is not self-mastery. It's a heart transformation. The only solution to an adulterous heart is to have our hearts changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Living in light of this change, we are able to do whatever it takes to remain pure. So how do we apply Jesus' to teaching in this passage? To begin with, we ought to recognize that pornography as a form of adultery of the heart. Lustful thoughts and fantasies are adultery of the heart. Whether it's a form of visual pictures or erotic romance novels, pornography leads to more and more lust. those who have had transformed hearts are called by Christ to go beyond the mere avoidance of adulterous actions, but to also fight against adulterous thoughts as well. This may mean giving up some of the movies and television shows that we watch. It may mean having accountability in our lives when it comes to being online, on the computer, or on our phones stop and think for a minute what in this lifetime is worth an eternity in hell first corinthians 618 it says this flee from sexual immorality every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body the scriptures are clear that the pleasures of sin Sexual sin lasts for a moment. But eternity without Christ is suffering that will not end. And the harsh words of Jesus that we just read are for our good, meant to shake us out of our slumber, out of our sleep. A lot of times we go through life in a fog. Occasionally, God's able to get through that fog and wake us up. And he's trying to do that now. So proactively dealing with sexual sin and temptation does not mean creating a checklist of legalistic requirements. It means our pursuit of pleasure in God is greater than our pursuit of pleasure in the world. Yes. So take a good look at your life. and Take a good look at your heart. If you're addicted to internet pornography, get some accountability. If you're committing adultery within your own heart, seek God's grace and repentance in your life. There should be a sense of urgency in fighting sexual sin. This is not something, this is where Jesus was talking about, cut off your hand, pluck out your eye. He's saying you need to do something now because it's gonna lead to, this is the same as the sin. I remember that President Carter, when he got elected, I was not a Christian, I hadn't accepted Christ at this time, and he said, I have sinned, I've lusted in my heart. I've sinned because I've lusted in my heart for a woman. I thought, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But if you see, as a Christian, we see what happens as you get closer and closer, as you start to let these things take you off track. God's saying, you know, you're going to go down a road like David went down. You're going to get closer to that thunderstorm than you ever wanted to be, and once you're in the middle of it, you're going to regret it. I'm giving you these warnings up front because I love you. You know, there's there's one person that really loves you. It's a person that died for you. Amen. So the good news of the gospel is that the demand of the law, that all who are found guilty of adultery deserve punishment, is met by Jesus Christ. The innocent lamb who died on the cross for what? For our sins. No matter how bad you messed up, you can find forgiveness in Christ. Let's look at John 8, 1-11. Remember this? In the, Christ was on the Temple Mount, and so they're trying to trap him still. So they bring this woman who's a created, who's had adultery that they've caught, and the punishment for adultery is take her, stand her out there and give everybody rocks, and they throw rocks and they kill her. And they bring it, They bring this person to Jesus, and they say, the scribes of Pharisees brought this woman. She'd been caught. You know, and they said to him, "Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery." Now, in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone this, such a woman. So, what do you say? And Jesus didn't say anything right away. He got down in the, in the sand, and I would think he's he's writing something. But it never says what he's writing. And then he stands up and he looks at him. He says let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Well, after he says that, these people start dropping these rocks and walking away. Then he says, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She goes, no. No, Lord. And so then he says to her, neither do I. I don't condemn you. So go Now and sin no more. Now, he did not condemn her, but instead he told her to go and sin no more. The woman caught in adultery was forgiven. Not because she deserved it, hear me on this, but because Christ bestowed it. She was shown grace. And that grace is what empowered her to leave her life of sin. Grace. Not doing it by, your, by yourself, by keeping the law. Well, what does that look like? So, strength in marriage is achieved with God at the center. And surrounded by fellow believers. See, you need those fellow believers for your strength. We look at Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And it says... Therefore as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord so walk in Him rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith just as you were taught abounding in thanksgiving. Who are you rooted in? Huh? Being firmly rooted and now being built up in Him and established in your faith. You've been taught. So I'm rooted in Christ, I've been taught, I'm established in my faith, and just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. So what kind of root system do you have? What kind of root system do you have? I started thinking about this and I thought, what is a good example for a great root system, an example of our root system with Christ? And with each other. What is an example? Why does that help me? What what's the point of having this relationship with you and with Christ? Because Christ strengthens me, right? My relationship with you, if it's honest, helps me stay straight and strong in my relationship with Him. Same for you. And so I looked at I looked at the sequoia tree, the redwoods that are in California. And the redwoods in there in California, I've got a picture of one here. This one is named General Sherman, I believe. 275 feet high, about 2,500 years old, has withstood fires, floods, hail, winds, anything that could be thrown at, cold, hot. Uh, And you say, wow, that must have a really deep root system. Guess what? The root system is only six to 10 feet deep. For a tree that stands 300 feet high, that's been around as straight as an arrow, has been around for 2,500 years. 2,500 years. And you think, well, six to 10 feet is not much root system, but here's, this, here's the key. That these roots, first of all, cover a lot of area, and they're intertwined. So trees, you don't see one, you see two. Don't see one by itself, you see two, you see more. Those roots are all intertwined. Not only do they are they standing strong together to keep that tree straight and tall for twenty five hundred years, but they share nutrients. Now think about how that applies to us. We share strength with each other with Christ. And we share when we disciple one another to keep ourselves strong. That's our nutrients being in the Word, being in Him. This is really important. So that tree is an example that we can look at and say, that strength comes from all those things being joined together. Straight, tall, 2,500 years, 300 feet high, 500 tons of strength. Whether it's the oldest living thing and the biggest living thing on the planet. So I want to say to you, when we think about ourselves, you know, we, and it says also in this, about Redwoods, only Redwoods have the strength and ability to support other Redwoods. Just apply that to us. So in conclusion, because we got to get out of here, there's a missional aspect to keeping the seventh commandment, do not commit adultery. Our purity showcases our identity as God's missional people who live for His glory. The church is supposed to be different from the world. Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we are to be the light of the world. Our attitudes, our actions should be different from those outside this church and from the church across the world. We demonstrate the beauty of godly living And not by lording our morals over others, but by showing them the wisdom of following Christ and the grace of trusting Him for forgiveness. The stronger our marriages, the stronger our marriages, the stronger our witness to the gospel.